turn in with me in your Bibles, please, to Luke chapter 6. And over the last few weeks, we've seen, I think, some pretty incredible things in God's word. We've seen the calling of Levi. We see how Jesus wonderfully called this man who himself was a tax collector, the last person on earth that you would likely see called to Jesus, a turncoat, if you will, from the Israelite people. And instead, somebody who started working for the Romans, the arch enemy. And yet God saved him. Jesus called him to his name. And last week we saw just the abounding joy of what it is to follow Jesus. That as we devote ourselves to him, as we feast ourselves on him and gather around the gospel and ensure we not add to this word or take away from this word, we'll find that it has a reviving effect on our souls. Well, today the story just continues in that same vein. As today we look at the upside down kingdom of God. And so if you want a title for this morning's message, I've called it the Upside Down Kingdom. And we're going to look at what it really means to walk in this upside down kingdom. A kingdom, as we will see, that is so very different to the kingdom of this world. Let's look then at verse 12 through to the end of verse 26 of chapter 6. This is the word of the Lord. In these days, he went out to the mountain to pray. And all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve, whom he named apostles. Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew his brother, and James and John, and Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas, and James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon who was called the Zealot, and Judas the son of James, and Judas Iscariot who became a traitor. And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him for power came out from him and healed them all. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples And said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you. For so their fathers did to the false prophets. Let's pray and ask the Lord for help. Lord, we do come to you this morning totally dependent upon you. Lord, I pray, would you just still our world for a moment? Would you quieten our souls for a moment? Would it be as if we are sitting with you, gathered around with this crowd and disciples this morning to hear from you and to learn from you? Lord, would this word have an edifying effect on our souls? Would it have a clarifying effect on our souls? Would it have a strengthening effect on our souls? Lord, feed us with your word this morning. In Jesus' precious name, amen. 
Amen. You know, there has without doubt been many wonderful and good things come out of the United States of America. For example, Netflix. Where would we be without Netflix, particularly during homeschool? Disney, Coca-Cola, McDonald's, Apple computers, Apple iPhones, KFC. Andrew Lung, where would you be without KFC? Hollywood movies. Where would we all be without movies that have come out of the United States? There have been so many good things that have come out of the United States of America, but there has also been some terrible things, horrible things to come out of the United States of America. And one example of that, I think the pinnacle example of that, is the prosperity gospel. Or as it's sometimes known, the health and wealth gospel. You see, the prosperity gospel is a false gospel. It's a gospel that wrongly teaches people that if you follow Jesus, and if you give to Jesus, and if you serve Jesus, and if you really follow Jesus, then here will be the fruit. You will be healthy, and you will be wealthy. That's what your lives will look like. You will be healthy before the Lord. You will be wealthy before the Lord. And if you're not, well, it must be because you lack faith. So you need to stir up more faith. You need to name it and claim it in the name of Jesus. And as the fruit of that, guess what? You will be healthy and wealthy. It will be your best life now. Well, the challenge with that is it is a false gospel. And yet, like all false gospels, it is attractive and seductive, isn't it? Who doesn't want to be healthy? And who doesn't want to be wealthy? Or at least comfortable. And yet the Bible doesn't actually promise us that. Yet like all false gospels, it is attractive, it is seductive, and yet, in all honesty, it fails to deliver as advertised. As you follow Jesus, more often than not, you are not healthy, you are not wealthy, and what happens as a result, people get disillusioned, they get disappointed, they get dismayed with God, and then when they speak to people about it, the premise is, you just need more faith. You need to give more, you keep need to serve more, and as a fruit, you will get healthy and wealthy, but people just go round in circles and get legalistic and disappointed and dismayed and disillusioned with God in his entirety. And yet, sadly, this false gospel, which is anathema and terrible in every way, has spread around the world over the last 50 to 60 years like COVID. All around the third world, this gospel is preached, this false gospel. A number of years ago, I went to Zambia in Africa, and I saw it firsthand. As you drive along this road, there is billboard after billboard after billboard of health and wealth preachers saying, come to us, come to our crusade, come and watch us online, give to this. God will do you good. It will be your best life now. He will help you and make you healthy and wealthy if you come to us. It's appalling. I was recently speaking to my friend Michael Granger, who's the lead pastor of Trinity Fellowship Church, our church in Ethiopia. And he was saying that it's exactly the same there. Their biggest challenge to the gospel, the true gospel of Jesus Christ, is the health and wealth gospel. And people are either bound up in it already, or they've tasted it and seen it and are totally disillusioned with it, and so want nothing to do with Jesus. And so he actually wrote a book to help him in the Amharic language so that it could be communicated to the Ethiopians, so they could understand the difference between this prosperity gospel and the true gospel of Jesus Christ. It is rampant in the third world, and sadly, it has also been rampant often in the Western world as well. Even here in Australia, it can without doubt be found. I mean, who doesn't want to be healthy and wealthy? It's attractive, is it not? And so you become a Christian, you stick Jesus on like a bumper sticker on the back of your car, and then you drive off, and the fruit should be that you're healthy and wealthy, according to that 
gospel. Even in conservative evangelicalism, I believe it can be found. Its pervasive effect can be found. And you notice it when people aren't healthy or they're not wealthy and they wag their finger at God as if he'd let them down. And you think, why do you think he let you down? And because the working assumption is that if I really follow him and I really love him, then I should be healthy and wealthy, right? Well, my friends, that's not actually what the Bible teaches at all. And I'm so grateful then for his word. I'm so grateful for the clarifying effect that the Bible has on our lives. And I'm so grateful for this text in particular. Because what we discover right here in this text is this one true thing. We see what it actually looks like to walk with Jesus in this upside down kingdom of God. We learn together around this word what we really can anticipate as we follow Jesus, what we really can expect as we follow Jesus into his kingdom and live for him. And we see very clearly what it actually looks like to walk with Jesus in this upside down kingdom of God. You know, what we can anticipate as we walk with Jesus in this kingdom is so different to the health and wealth gospel. He never promises health and wealth to us in any shape or form. Likewise, what we can anticipate is so different to this kingdom of the world. What the world says to us, what the world advertises to us that will make us happy and glad and content is so different to what Jesus says right here in his word. And yet what we can guarantee and anticipate as we walk with Jesus in this upside down kingdom of God is blessing. And it is the blessing of joy, of gladness, and of profound contentment. And so what a lesson this is as we stand on his word this morning. What a clarifying and helpful lesson we have right before us. And so what does it look like? What does it actually look like to walk with Jesus in this upside down kingdom of God? Well, it looks like five things and all five of these things are taken directly from the text. So here's where the story begins. Number one, what does it look like to walk with Jesus in this upside down kingdom? Number one, it looks like dependence. It looks like dependence, total and utter dependence and particularly on the Lord. Look with me again at verse 12. It says, In these days he went out to the mountain to pray. And all night he continued in prayer to God. All night he prayed. You see, when it comes to modeling a complete and unquestionable dependence upon God, no one modeled that better than Jesus Christ. As you examine who Jesus was, as you examine the way he lived, no one modeled a total dependence upon the Lord better than him. And if we've been paying attention so far in the Gospel of Luke, we've seen that this is already a theme and been pointed out to us by Luke before. For example, in Luke chapter 4, Jesus has spent the day in Capernaum. He's been preaching in the synagogue. He's been healing the sick the very next morning. It says, and when it was day, he departed And went into a desolate place. The other gospels tell us he went into that desolate place to pray. At the end of a long day and before a new day begins. He's simply crying out to God again for help and aid. Understanding Lord I need you. 
We see it again in Luke chapter 5, verse 16. Jesus, again, in the midst of busyness and pressures. It says in Luke 5, verse 16, But he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. You know, my friends, when it comes to modeling and really giving us an example of what it means to rely upon the Lord, to offer dependence upon God, no one model that better than Jesus. And yet this verse, I think, stands unique because we read he went out to the mountain to pray all night. He prayed all night long. Church, let me ask you this. When was the last time you prayed all night long for something? That's a long time. You know, I want to encourage you in God's kindness. This isn't actually here, I think, to teach us that we must do the same. That you all need to spend now and again times of all night prayer. Now, that's not the point of this text, but this is the point of this text. Here is the point. It's to help us see that if Jesus, as the Son of God, needs to pray and depend upon God in this way, that how much more do you and I need to depend on God and pray in this way? It's challenging, isn't it? But it's so clearly the point. You see, we live in a world, a kingdom of this world that teaches us, I think wrongly, but it teaches us all the time that true maturity equals true independence. To be truly mature means to be totally independent, means to be self-sufficient. And so really, the, the words of the day, the advertisements of the day are all about how we need to stand on our own two feet. How we need to make a life for ourselves. How we need to understand that we can be whatever we want to be. We can achieve whatever we want to achieve. We can do whatever we want to do. We just need to put our mind to it. You know, growing up, I went to Spalding Grammar School. It was a selective school in Lincolnshire. People were chosen around our state to go to it. I went to it. I had a wonderful time. But I'll never forget, on the very first day of school, they lined us up as these 11, 12-year-old kids in the school assembly and the headmaster comes in. They're all wearing robes to show that they've got doctorates and so on and so forth. And they came in and said, kids, you can be whatever you want to be. You can achieve whatever you want to achieve. You've just got to believe in yourself. You've got to dig within. If you want to work hard, you work hard. If you want to be something, you go for it. The answers are within. Just work hard and apply yourself and you can be whatever you want to be. My friends, I submit to you. In a sense, that is the mantra of our entire world, is it not? To be truly mature is to be totally independent. To be really mature is to need no one. To understand, I can do all things through me who strengthens me. That is the mantra, I believe, of our world. But what Jesus is helping us see here is in this upside-down kingdom, true maturity means true dependence. Absolute and complete dependence upon the Lord. And my friends, what an important reminder this is, don't you think? For all of us in COVID, we can find ourselves anxious and troubled by many things. Let's just be honest. It can be difficult. There can be things attached to COVID that can be really tempting, whether you're married or single, kids or none. We all have different pressures on us right now. And the temptation can be just to, you know, bum up, head down, work hard. We'll figure it out. We'll figure it out. But what Jesus is helping us see here is, helping us see here is you won't figure it out. You need to depend on me. 
For apart from me, you can do nothing. Our world screams at us. The true maturity is independence. You can do it. Figure it out. Whereas Jesus says no true maturity is total dependence upon God the Father. And no one modeled that better than Jesus. My friends, that's where this story then begins. We need to understand that if we're going to enjoy the joy and blessing of favor that comes with walking with Jesus in this kingdom, it doesn't look like independence. It looks like total dependence upon the Lord. Understanding our total need for him to get through each and every day of our lives for his glory. Right up front then, Jesus teaches us that it looks like dependence. He then Having prayed, he actually chooses his 12 apostles. It's clear that there are actually many disciples following Jesus by this point, likely tens and tens of disciples that are giving their lives to follow him. But Jesus said out of this number, he chooses 12, 12 men that he's actually going to build the church on after he's gone. 12 men that are going to be his messengers from Jerusalem, Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. 12 men that he's going to build the church on for his glory after he ascends to the heavenly realms. Well, after choosing them, he then goes down to a level place and there are people all around him from Jerusalem to Judea to Tyre and Sidon. They all want to be healed. They all want to have demons cast out. And so he does that in care and grace for them. And then he sits them down on this level place and he begins to teach them. And he begins to teach them about this upside down kingdom. And it's there that we learn the second point that I want to make today. The second thing that it looks like to walk with him in this upside down kingdom. So here's point two. Number one, what does it look like? Number two, what does it look like to walk with Jesus in this kingdom? Number two, it looks like poverty. Poverty. So different to what the health and wealth gospel would suggest. But Jesus says it right here. Look with me at verse 20 and then we're also going to look at verse 24. Each of these blessings and woes have an equal and opposite all the way through. So look with me at verse 20. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. And then verse 24, but woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. You know, to write up front then, Jesus is helping us see there is blessing attached to walking with him in this kingdom. And this blessing is all about a supreme joyfulness, a supreme gladness, and a supreme contentment. It's something that you really, really want. And so he attaches this blessing, the supreme joy and gladness and contentment, he attaches it to poverty. It's the last place that maybe we would look, particularly in the Western world, for a place of favor. But he makes it clear it's that that brings this blessing, that position, and To be clear, he's not talking about economic poverty. That's something actually I think he touches on later down the track. What he's actually talking about here is spiritual poverty. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. See, Jesus has already touched on this in Luke chapter 4 verse 18 in his first sermon. You remember back in Luke chapter 4, he's in his hometown of Nazareth. He preaches to them and as the scroll is passed to him, he turns to Isaiah 61 and this is what he says. He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. 
And my friends, so it was. The Spirit of the Lord was on Jesus. The Spirit of the Lord descended upon Jesus when he got baptized. And as he was filled with the Spirit, as he was engaged by with the Spirit, he was anointed to preach the good news to who? To the poor. Well, Jesus didn't go around then checking everybody's bank balance before he preached to them, did he? No, he preached to people. His point is not economic poverty, it's spiritual poverty. He preached good news to the spiritually poor, and so he did. And what an important lesson this is. You see, the Pharisees and the scribes that were around at this time simply did not get this, because the Pharisees and the scribes, by very nature, were all about self-atonement. They thought as long as we keep the law, as long as we pray, as long as we worship, as long as we fast, as long as we do all the things that God requires of us, we'll be sweet. We'll get into heaven. We'll be accepted by God. Of course we will. We are are the righteous. That's why they walked around all the time as holier than thou. Because as far as they were concerned, they were right with God through themselves, through their own actions, that they had surely done enough to know that heaven would be their home. And in truth, as I thought about this point this week, there are so many people in our world that operate in just the same way, isn't there? They think that surely, if there is a heaven, then they'll be good enough to get there. When was the last time you went to a funeral? And as part of the speech they're talking about, that they say, you know what? They weren't a bad person, but I'm pretty sure they didn't do enough to get to heaven. They will not be smiling down on us right now. No one ever says that. You hear again and again and again, oh, I'm sure they're looking down on us. They're in a better place. They're in a good place. Even though they didn't know Jesus at all in any way, the assumption is they were a good person, so surely heaven will be their home. And yet what Jesus teaches us here is that the only way into the kingdom kingdom of God, the only way to enter into the heavenly realms is not through self-atonement. It's through complete and utter spiritual poverty. It's through realizing, I can't do this by myself. I've got nothing. And I need a savior. Kent Hughes, sorry, John Stott, wonderfully says it this way. He says, to be poor in spirit is to recognize your utter spiritual bankruptcy before God. For we are sinners under the holy wrath of God and deserving nothing but the judgment of God. For we have nothing to offer Nothing to plead and nothing in and of ourselves to buy to, to buy the favour of heaven. My friends, it's so true. Spiritual poverty is understanding that I am totally spiritually bankrupt before him. That I got nothing. That I've got nothing to offer you that makes me right with you. That I've got nothing to offer you to enter my, to, to buy the ticket to heaven. Lord, I've got nothing. See, the Bible teaches us in Romans 3 that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us, we all stand condemned before the Lord. But in the same breath, John 3.16 tells us, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son so that anyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Jesus' whole message was, listen, I've come not for the righteous, I've come from the sick. I've come for the spiritually poor. I've come from those that will bow their knee, realizing I got nothing. I need a savior. And I've come for them because I will be their savior. I will pay their sacrifice for them. I will pay the consequences of their sin for them. And they will take my blessing and my righteousness. I want them to. 
because that's why I came. Listen, if you're online today and you are not a Christian and you are therefore tempted to self-atone, you're trying to do things thinking, I hope I make it to heaven. I hope I'll be good enough. I hope he will accept me. Listen, I want to encourage you. You can just go ahead and drop now all those things you're doing, thinking that those things will atone for you. Because they won't. They won't add a thing. You are so far short. But if you put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Saviour, that's all it is. If you trust your life to him, repenting of your sin and saying, Jesus, I need you, please come into my life. Then in that moment, the Bible tells us again and again and again, you will be saved. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. And the moment you realize, I'm lost, I got nothing without you, is the moment you put your faith in him and he forgives you and redeems you and assures you that heaven is your home. If you don't know Jesus, I want to exhort you to do that today. And if you do know Jesus, if you're a Christian yourself, I want to encourage you to never move on. Never move on from this being the grounds and foundation of your faith. You know, one of my favorite movies is the movie Amazing Grace. It follows the story of William Wilberforce, an English politician. And William William Wilberforce, he gave his life in so many ways to seeing the abolition of the slave trade take place. He knew it was anathema before the Lord. He knew it was totally sinful. He knew it was wrong in every way. And he wanted to see the parliament totally and utterly shut this thing down. And one man that he asked then for help from was an ex-slave trader. It was a man by the name of John Newton. John Newton had previously been a slave trader himself. And yet at some point in his life, he had become a Christian. He had seen the reality of what Jesus had done for him. He repented of his sin, really with sackcloth and ashes for him. He was so exuberantly sad about all he had done. And he put his faith in Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. And Wilberforce asked him, John, I need your help. By this time, John Newton had actually become a pastor himself. He wanted to tell others about the amazing grace of God. And so in doing that, he gave himself to that. And William comes to see him one day and says, John, I need your help. I need you to write down for me all the different things that I don't understand. I need evidence. And Mr. Newton said to him, William, I will help you in any way I can. But there's so many things that I've forgotten, so many details. But William, there's two things I remember in particular. Number one, I am a great sinner. And number two, I have a great saviour. Brothers and sisters, if you know Jesus, they're the only two things that you really need to be mindful of and remember and hold on to each and every day of your life. You are a great sinner, but you have a great saviour. When we come to Jesus by grace and understand, I'm spiritually poor before you, but you have saved me by your grace. It's then that we will experience joy and blessing of following. Let us not try and smuggle in our works to a salvation which is all of grace. Instead, let us understand, I am a great sinner. I am poor, but I have a great savior and I find my joy in you. My friends, that's what it is to walk in the kingdom of God it looks like dependence it looks like poverty and number three it looks like hunger for me at verse 21 
As blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. And then in verse 26, Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. You know, once again, this is a kind of interesting place to find this truth, is it not? Blessing, the supreme joy and gladness and contentment is now linked to hunger. And to the Western ear, that sounds so strange, does it not? I mean, why would hunger, something that I really don't like, bring about such blessing and favor and gladness in my life? I don't get it. And you see, part of the reason why we don't get it, my friend, is the fact that we live in a world that teaches us again and again and again that true satisfaction is always going to be found in external things. So it's what I own. It's my stuff. If I'm hungry, go buy food. Go eat it. If you're thirsty, go get a drink. Go go do it. We live in a world that is all about satisfying ourselves again and again and again in external things. If you want to be happy, then get stuff. Eat well, get nice drinks, get a house, get a car, get a great job, whatever it be. The list goes on. The world screams that all happiness and satisfaction is found in external things. And because we tend to believe that, well, we find ourselves envious of people at different times, don't we? We find ourselves envious of what people have, thinking, if only I had that as well, I think I'd be supremely happy. I'd be glad, I'd be content, if only I had blank. And you know, one man who can completely relate to us as we sometimes feel that is Asaph in Psalm 73. In Psalm 73, verses 2 to 3, we read, But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. So he's looking on at the world, and he's looking on over the fence, outside of Israel, in effect. He's looking on over the fence, and his point is, it seems to be going great for them over there. They seem to have everything they want. I mean, look at them. They're smiling. They're happy. They're fat. They've just been eating clearly plenty. It all seemed to be going great for them everywhere else. But they don't love Jesus. No, they don't love God. They're not interested in God at all. In fact, they set their mouths against the heavens. And yet always at ease, they increase their riches. Whatever they seem to give themselves to seems to go great. He's envious of them. He's looking over at the world. He's looking over at what they have. And his assumption is, if only I had what they have, I would be happy. And his feet then had almost stumbled. Because in and of himself, he was tempted to go after what they themselves have. But then in verse 16 and 17, it all changes. He says, but when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Listen. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, and then I discerned therein. As he spends time with the Lord, worshipping him in, in prayer and in his word, and giving his gaze afresh to the Lord, he realizes, oh my goodness, that is not true satisfaction at all. That is not where I'm going to find true satisfaction as he gives himself to the Lord and focuses on the Lord. He realizes, oh Lord, in you I have all that I need. And that's what he then exclusively says in verse 25 and 26. He says, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. For my flesh and my heart may fail, 
But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And what Jesus is saying here, my friends, is in exactly the same that was true for Asaph. This kingdom of God is totally upside down still to this day. The world screams at us that true satisfaction is going to come in stuff. It's going to come in things. That's what will satisfy you. But no. In this kingdom, blessed are the hungry. And blessed are the hungry because they will then come to me and satisfy themselves in me. They will feast on Jesus, whose right hand are pleasures forevermore. They'll feast on Jesus by coming into his presence in song and in praise and worship. And the more they do it, the more they will realize, oh my goodness, whom have I in heaven but you? And what do I desire besides you? For you are my strength and my portion forever. What Asaph experienced in that moment was complete joy and gladness and contentment in God. And what Jesus is saying is, so shall we, as we feast ourselves on him and him alone. My friends, it's so important that we remember this, isn't it? Because we can so easily get distracted from this, can't we? We can so easily think, if I just had blank, then I'd be happy. I'm sure I'd be satisfied. You just don't understand. I'm different to everybody else. No, the truth is I do understand. And the Bible understands. We so often try and find our satisfaction in external things. But what Jesus is saying, listen, in this kingdom, satisfaction can only be found in him. He is the source of satisfaction. You know, one proverb that always makes me laugh as I think about it is Proverb 23, verse 5. It may help you. It says, in the blink of an eye, wealth disappears, for it will sprout wings and fly away like an eagle. My friends, I want you to imagine that the next time you crave something, whether it be a car or a house or a phone or whatever it be, imagine it sprouting rings and flying off because at some point that's what it's likely going to do. It will never satisfy you in the way you think it will. But Jesus' point is in this kingdom, it will satisfy you exactly like it will. Walking with Jesus in this kingdom looks like dependence, it looks like poverty, it looks like hunger. And then number four, as we begin to wrap this up, it looks like weeping. Weeping. Look again then at verse 21b and 25b. For blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. And then verse 25b. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Now, to be very clear, so there not be confusion here, what Jesus is not saying here is blessed are the grim and cheerless. He's not trying to promote a Christianity that is boring and grim and cheerless for Jesus. He's not trying to help us be the chosen frozen here. That's not what his point is. No, in Proverbs 17, verse 22, Solomon says, a joyful heart is good medicine. He's promoting joy in our hearts and laughter in our hearts. And listen, as we said last week, Jesus himself was profoundly joyful, wasn't he? To be around Jesus was to be around a man who radiated joy. That's why the Pharisees in part have such a problem with him. You're always happy. You're always banqueting. You're always eating and drinking. What's up with this? To be around Jesus was to be around a man who radiated wonderful and complete and utter joy. 
And it's a joy that without any doubt he wants us to walk in. Oswald Sanders puts it this way. He says, we should see that the lines of laughter about the eyes are just as much marks of faith as are the lines of care and seriousness. For we have already allowed too much that is good to be lost to the church and cast too many pearls before swine. A church is in a bad way when it banishes laughter from the sanctuary and leaves it instead to the cabaret, the nightclub and the toastmasters. For a joyful heart is good medicine. And so it is, my friends. A joyful heart is good medicine. God wants us to radiate joy. He wants us to be around him and around other brothers and sisters and radiate a joy because we're truly enjoying him. In his presence, exemplified by Jesus himself. However, what Jesus is saying quite clearly in this text is that although we should experience this great joy, that is a joy that also needs to be mingled with mourning and sorrow and weeping. What for? Well, for the world. And for all those in it that even now are rejecting him as Lord and Savior. Married with that great joy that we have with him should also be a great sorrow. That as we look out our doors, we see people in their masses in orange jumpsuits running away from him, uninterested in him, and therefore destined to hell. See, Jesus himself was a man of joy, but he was also also a man of sorrow. When he thought about people, when he thought about the effect of sin in the world, when he saw about how society had embraced sin, it, it broke his heart and it broke his heart that people were rejecting him and turning him down and turning, therefore, to run to hell instead. In Luke chapter 13, verse 34, for example, Jesus says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. The city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers a brood under her wings? And yet you were not willing. It breaks his heart. He's sorrowful. He's lamenting that, oh, I wish you would come to me. I wish you would turn to me. I want you to be saved. I want you to have heaven as your home, Jerusalem. But you're so far from me. He does the same in Luke 19, verse 41. It says, And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. Once again, we see Jesus. He hasn't come to judge the world. He hasn't come like some type of principle just to point the finger and wag the finger at people. Not at all. No, he's come to seek and save the lost. He's come to heal the sick, to help people of the spiritual bondage they're in. And when he sees them rejecting it, he breaks his heart. Because he loves people. And it causes him to weep then over people and how they've rejected him. And what Jesus is helping us see here is in this kingdom, as we walk with him and imitate him, we need to do the same. We also need to have a real sensitive of soul and heart towards the lost. Kent Hughes wonderfully says it this way. He says, For we are called to weep over lost souls. And over people who will go into eternal darkness without Christ. We are to weep over the world's misery. Over the injustice that falls on so many helpless people. 
over the unfairness that victimises the weak, over child abuse, over battered women, over adultery, over divorce, over betrayals, over rejection and over loneliness. And we are to weep over those who will laugh now, but unless they turn to Christ, will suffer mourning forever. And my friends, so we are, are we not? I've been so provoked about this once again this week. There are people in their hundreds of thousands around us in Sydney that even now are in their orange jumpsuits and don't know it. They're running on death row, headlong to hell. They're running for a destiny without Christ. And yet they don't know it, and if they do, they don't care. And yet this world is constantly tempting us to embrace it as home. It's constantly distracting us away from the reality of the destiny of the contents of the people where they're going. It's constantly tempting us to embrace it as home, the values and the way it thinks, and to turn blind eye to things and not be interested in things. It is constantly tempting us to embrace it as home and normal. And yet what Jesus is saying is, no, for Christians, we need to see the state of the world. We need to see the consequences of sin and how it's affecting society. And we need to look people in the eye and realize where they are going without him. And in effect... Weep over that. Soften our hearts to see it for the way it really is. And not then wag our fingers at people, but love them enough to tell them the truth about Christ and him crucified. To want to love them in compassion and tell them about the great physician. And want to love them enough then to introduce them one after another to Jesus. So that they may be saved. That's what it means to weep now, my friends. To have a heart of compassion for people. To then tell them about a Jesus. And what will happen then? Well, by grace, we will then laugh then. Why? Because we'll have the joy of introducing people to Jesus. And on that day, we will have the joy of worshipping around his heavenly throne with them alongside us. Saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. For how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. And what an opportunity this thing gives us. You know, I thank God. That my salvation isn't based upon how well I do in evangelism. And so so is yours. Your salvation isn't based upon how well you do in mission. But I thank God that now as a Christian, we do get to do mission. For how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Blessed are those who weep now. Because they will then laugh. And then finally, just in closing, the fifth part of the puzzle of what it looks like to truly walk with Jesus in this upside down kingdom. Number five, it looks like opposition. Again, you don't tend to read that in too many books. You tend to read that if you follow Jesus, you'll be healthy and wealthy. Sadly, and most importantly, that is not what it says here. And it's for our good that it says what it does here. Look with me at verse 22 and 23 and then 26. It says, Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. So their fathers did to the prophets. And then verse 26. But woe to you when all people speak well of you. 
for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Once again, then, we see this theme of blessing, the supreme joyfulness and gladness and contentment, something that's been offered to us by Jesus himself. And yet it is joined right here to opposition. Opposition. And so we read, we read words like hate and exclude and revile and spurn and realize what he's saying is that's what you're going to experience. And those two things don't seem to go together for us, do they? Joy and opposition, gladness of being reviled, being treated with contentment, enjoying contentment, but treated like being spurned. You know, one of the reasons why those things don't go together for us is because we live in a world that greatly prizes comfort and therefore toleration. I mean, we do. We love to be comfortable, do we not? We just want to be supremely comfortable in all things. And what the world says is as we pursue comfort, we just need to tolerate everybody. Whatever they're saying, however ridiculous it may be, just turn a blind eye to it and just tolerate it. If it doesn't hurt you, then say nothing. Keep your head down. We live in a world that prizes comfort and therefore prizes toleration. But what Jesus says is, as you actually live for me, as you imitate me, as you actually brandish the gospel and share it like I did, you will be persecuted. It's part of the walk. It's part of what it means to truly follow Jesus as Lord and Savior. He says it this way in John 15 verse 20. He says, remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will surely also persecute you. Paul says the same to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3 verse 12. He says, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. My friends, it's part of what it means to follow Jesus. Jesus didn't promise comfort. He didn't promise an easy life. No, he actually promises persecution. But what he wants to help us see here is that persecution will also bring with it great joy and gladness and contentment. Why? Well, because not a spot of it will go unnoticed and therefore unrewarded by him on the glorious day to come. For what a day that will be, my friends. And what a joyful reality that is, don't you think? Listen, if you are in any way being hated on account of Christ, I want to encourage that one day you will stand before him and you will hear his well done. One day you will be cheered on by the King of Kings and Lord of Lords as he himself applauds you. If you are in any way being excluded on account of Christ, If you are in any way suffering insult because of Christ, if you are in any way being rejected because of the way you are living for Jesus as the Son of God himself. My friends, whatever the circumstance be, I want to encourage you. One day you will stand before him and hear his well, well done. That's why in the book of Acts, The apostles, when they are suffering, when they're beaten, when they're put in jail, they usually erupt in singing. And you can think, what is up with that? Well, what is up with that is they are aware that Jesus was with them, helping them to cope with that as it played out. But moreover than that, one day they will stand before him and they will be rewarded in the heavenly realms for sharing in his suffering 
and they will hear his well done. This is so different to what the world says. The world says, be comfortable. Do all you can to be comfortable. And Jesus says, no, you need to get uncomfortable. There's going to be times where you'll be persecuted because of your faith. But I will not unnotice anything. I will pay attention to everything. And one day I will reward you for it all. My friends, the kingdom of God is so upside down to what we would naturally think it to be, wouldn't we? It's so different to the health and wealth gospel. It doesn't promise us health and wealth at all, anywhere. It's anathema before the Lord. It is a joke and just leads people to be disillusioned and dismayed and disappointed with God as if he's let them down, when in reality, he never promised us it. It's not what the Bible says. This kingdom of God is so different to the kingdom of the world. It's upside down from the kingdom of the world. It's so different to the way the world operates. But incredibly, it's a kingdom that Jesus has so graciously called us to walk in. Oh, my friends, what a privilege it is that we get to walk in it at all, don't you think? It is scandalous grace that you and I, us, get to walk in this kingdom. I believe Mr. Newton was right. There's only two things that we really need to know. I am a great sinner. And I have a great saviour. It's abounding grace that he saved us at all. That he's forgiven us and redeemed us and assured us that heaven is our home. And now he puts us on a path where he guarantees as you walk in it, what you will experience in your life is joy and gladness and contentment. It will come to you in the most unexpected of ways. But trust me, that's what you will experience as a result. So my friends, I want to encourage you. May we walk with Jesus on this pathway then with all our might. For this is the truth. And the truth will set us free. It is amazing grace that we are here at all. So may we walk in this. And may grace then always be our theme. Let's pray. Lord, once again, I do thank you for your word. I thank you for the clarifying effect that it can have on our souls. And Lord, I thank you for the clarity that you bring to us through your very mouth this morning as we understand what it really looks like to walk with you. Lord, this kingdom is so different to what we would imagine it to be. It's so different to the health and wealth gospel. It's so different to the kingdom of the world. But Lord, would we recognize it is good. For as we walk on this path, you will be with us. So Lord, may we depend on you like you depended on the Father. May we also depend and may we walk this path for your glory and by your grace. Lord, would the fruit be what you promised? Joy, contentment, gladness. And would that be the theme of Sovereign Grace Church? In Jesus' name, amen.